We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. That's it? That's all you got? Don't let the door hit you on the way out. It's March break. There you go. So, you know, for those of you that are uh, on your way to the airport <laughs> or, or looking for your bags or whatever, standing in line, there we go. Uh, actually, actually, no. Uh, the reason is it, Debbie Harry is number 168. Uh, Debbie Harry, number, uh, number 168 on Rolling Stone's top 200 singers of all time. But I'm telling you, as far as March break, is it not apropos? If you were getting on a plane somewhere now and flying to the somewhere warm or wherever, uh, there you go. It's perfect for that. <laughs> Duck incoming. All right, good afternoon. How does does not just throw salt in the wound now, right? Uh, all right, it's Hamilton today. Welcome to the fun. Uh, great to have you here. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at nine hundred chml dot com. Uh, are you got? Have you gotten over the uh, time change thing? You know, I'm going to sound like an old fart here. Sit down. I know I am. Um, but this one, for some reason, um, I don't know, maybe because I went out. See, that's maybe <laughs> we're going to play a funny clip from uh, Jamie Lee Curtis at the Oscars last night, which I think is very apropos. But, yeah, I, I kind of feel groggy today. I kind of feel like I've, well, you know, I've lost an hour of sleep. Uh, what the heck as we head into a, uh, a March break week? So I guess, you know, there and now the kids are home. So what does that do? You're low on sleep and now you got a house full of kids. That's going to put you over the edge. All right, uh, another jam-packed show. Uh, Oscars last night, did you watch? We're going to talk about that coming up uh, in just a sec. Uh, and, and um, yeah, feel free coming up. Uh, sorry, hang on. Uh, feel free coming up uh, after the 5 o'clock news. Hammerhead Trevor, your chance to win with that. Great prizes. All right, uh, Oscars last night. You know, um, uh, I did watch a bit of it because my wife was. And, um, you know, we're sitting there realizing, I think we've only seen one movie. That was the Elvis. And I think that was on a plane. Uh, but anyway, I found it very entertaining. And, you know, I like Jimmy Kimmel, so I thought he did uh, uh, an absolutely uh, great job of, uh, as host and such and, and Canadian connections and that. So uh, we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, some great news about a VW battery plant in St. Thomas. Uh, that's great news as we continue to grow our Ontario auto industry. And uh, Sarah Jamma is going to be joining as Hamilton Center uh, candidate coming up uh, after the 4 o'clock news as well. All right, um, but the big news, and man, this is just... I thought we'd fix this, but uh, Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch are um, uh, uh, they're trying to get their sentence reduced, basically. And I don't know either, but we're going to try to find out about it. But uh, here's Global's Tina Trajani on why you're hearing uh, these two killers' names in the news again. 
Due to a controversial ruling made by the Supreme Court last spring, it's almost inevitable the sentences given to killers Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch will be reduced. Both will be appearing before the Ontario Court of Appeal this week to appeal convictions for the murders of Tim Bosma and Laura Babcock. Millard is also appealing his conviction for killing his own father in 2012. Judges imposed consecutive sentences for the pair. Millard ineligible for parole for 75 years, 50 years for Smitch. Canada's highest court ruled consecutive periods of parole ineligibility amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. So, as a result, we could see both qualify for a reduced period of 25 years without parole. They've been in custody since their arrest nearly a decade ago and could be eligible for parole in 15. Tina Trajani, Global News. And, you know, I thought we dealt with this sort of stuff, um, uh, you know, when when they had uh, Tim Danson was the lawyer and the French and Mahaffey family had to go through what they were going through with Bernardo. And, and why does the family have to keep going through this? Well, obviously now the consecutive sentencing, which is one after the other, as opposed to concurrent at the same time, um, that's been ruled unconstitutional. So basically what it means is uh, a chance at parole earlier and the family has to go through this crap again which is just you know it, you just shake your head i guess there's some people that deserve it i'm not sure these two do uh anyway uh we'll get into that coming up a little later on as well all right oscars last night and uh canadian sarah Pauly uh winning for uh, her movie women uh talking listen to this we have the most incredible cast and the most incredible crew, some of whom are here tonight. Please stand up if you're there or if you're in the nosebleeds. And everybody at home who worked on this film. <laughs> oh my God. I accept this on all of our behalf. Thank you. Thank you. And made a, a pretty funny comment, too, about having, uh, you know, the, the term woman or women and talking in the title at once. And it didn't scare the executives away. All right. Uh, but uh, certainly uh, one of the bright stars and and uh, and cool wins last night was Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, and 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 not only that, but being vocal and chatting in, in, in whatever throughout the night. But she was also talking about uh, being older as a woman who's north of 60. And still looking absolutely incredible, I might add. And, and, and talking about how musicians and all this stuff should just happen earlier in the day. Like we don't need to be, why can't we go out and see a concert? And we're going to have Alan Cross on a little later on this hour talking about this exact thing. But here's what Jamie Lee Curtis had to say about matinee performances. I am going to just say this now as a taunt and as a suggestion. You too. Do a matinee. Coldplay. Do a matinee. What about a 12 noon concert, Coldplay? What about it? Bruce Springsteen. Do a fucking matinee. You're old. Why wouldn't you let me come see you, Bruce Springsteen, in your glory days? Pun intended. Um, and... Do it at noon or one o'clock, two o'clock, two o'clock matinee, theater in New York, two o'clock. I will come and hear your five-hour concert, Bruce, at two o'clock, and I'm going to be home and in bed by 7.30. (laughs) There you have it. And why not? Uh, I'll hold my hand up for that. What the heck? All right, more on that coming up. We're going to talk to a Washington Post reporter on on the Oscars last night as well. Uh, March break, and Alan Cross is going to join us this hour as well. This is actually a historical moment, so I really have to thank the Academy 
for acknowledging, embracing diversity and true representation. I think this is something that we have been working so hard towards for a very long time. And tonight, we frigging broke that glass ceiling. That's Michelle Yeoh. Last night it was everything, everywhere, all at once, uh, over and over again, including a big win for Jamie Lee Curtis uh, as well. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, the the week after a daylight savings time, time change weekend. Uh, how many fingers am I holding up? All right, let's move on. Feel free to jump into the fun. Uh, you can send me a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com, and the phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text 905-645-3221. All right, uh, Oscar's last night did you watch uh, I, I thought it was quite entertaining but then again i you know i, I really do like uh, jimmy kimmel as host but that's just my personal favorite uh, the movies i don't know i think we saw uh one <laughs> uh but let's bring in sonia rao feature reporter washington post and is with us now sonia thank you for the time i hope you're doing well i am thank you uh, i found it a, a pretty entertaining night what were your thoughts on 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 the presentation uh, did you think it was a good oscar show this time out sure i mean i think i think yes i think the producers this year really just didn't want the drama of last year which you know <laughs> i'm referencing will smith's nap slapping chris rock right i think they brought back kimmel because they wanted that sort of return to normalcy he's hosted this before um i think it went pretty smoothly i mean i don't think in terms of the actual show itself, it's going to be one of the most memorable shows. And maybe mm -hmm. that was the point. But I do think that the wins are significant. Um, and those will probably be, you know, some of the wins that we'll return to for years to come. All right. Talk about those significant wins. Sure. I mean, you know, we heard their audio just a second ago there. I think Michelle Yeoh winning was huge. I think the success of this movie, you know, Everything Everywhere All at Once is maybe a turning point. I mean, I think I personally look back to, you know, the moment Moonlight won. Of course, that was another envelope gate, as people call it. It was a bit of a messy mm. win there. Um, but, you know, if you look at the Academy and how it's changed since that moment in terms of, you know, the voting body has diversified. And I think that, you know, going forward, we'll maybe see more wins like this, you know, movies that at first glance, don't seem like a quote-unquote Oscar movie, but that resonated widely with audiences um, and that, you know, end up winning the biggest, biggest, all six awards, I believe, went to A24, the studio behind um, this movie. So, you know, they did really, really well. Do you think that the slap was a turning point for this show, the Academy, the whole thing? I think the slap is such an interesting, it happened at an interesting time because I think, you know, every year the Academy producers, they're struggling to get people to watch the show. And so yeah. I, I actually have not had a ch uh, chance to look at the ratings for last night yet, but I think it was an interesting thing to have happen because there was the question of, you know, is anyone even watching this? And Will Smith slapping someone on stage arguably will get people to tune in the next yeah. year, right? They want to see what's going to happen. Um, so I don't know if it's a turning point in terms of the show itself. I think they were just prepared for anything to happen this year. Um, but I do think, you know, the sense is Will Smith's still making work. I think everyone's kind of getting over it at this point. Uh, are you surprised there wasn't a, a cameo or a quick appearance by Chris Rock? Or do you, you know, think they just want, or do you think they just his own thing with Netflix? I feel like he chose a different uh, venue yeah. for that. Um, and I think, you know, at this point, I feel like the producers just didn't want to bring it up. I mean, Kimmel himself sure. brought it up, you know, a bunch of times joking mm -hmm. about it, but they might not have wanted to actually bring Chris Rock back.
So do you think they rebounded from that event uh, last year uh, well? I mean, I don't know. How do you do it well? Do you uh, do you try to top it? Do you try to sweep it under the rug? Do you try to just hold consistent ratings, like you said, because it is kind of losing steam over the years? Have they found that magic again? Maybe. I mean, I think my thing, having covered you know the industry for a little bit now, I think the best way to deal with a crisis of this sort is to make like you're in on the joke. And that applies to, you know, individual celebrity PR crises or this type of thing. Right. So I think that by Kimmel joking about it, addressing it, you know, there is no elephant in the room. Everybody's in on the joke and then they can move on because, you know, they've been there, done that, that sort of thing. Um, I think they did the best they possibly could (laughs) moving on from that. And, you know, I'd be curious to see if they do try to jazz up the ceremony um, in years to come, because I do think this was kind of like a baseline back to normal ceremony. But of course, that always allows for more attention for the actual awards, which I think is ultimately what a lot of people watch the Oscars for. Um, as I spoke uh, at the beginning, I thought Jimmy Kimmel did a, a really good job in the sense that he seemed incredibly relaxed. Like he, And that sort of takes the snottiness out of it a bit. Yeah. I mean, Kimmel's seasoned at this point. He's done this a million times. So I think that came through uh, for me personally. I'm not, I mean, I'm not like a hugest Jimmy Kimmel fan, but I also don't dislike him. I think I'm very neutral toward him. Um, So I think, I think he did the job well. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis win your comment on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that was a huge win and it was really interesting because I think the best supporting actress category you know, Stephanie Hsu, her castmate in that movie was nominated. Um, I do think that a lot of people maybe thought Carrie Condon from Banshees of Sharon would win. Um, but, you know, her speech, I thought Jamie Lee Curtis's speech was so touching. She is, of course, the daughter of two actors, both Oscar nominated themselves. Yeah. And I thought she kind of had this refrain, you know, we just won an Oscar throughout her speech, speaking to, you know, her family, her supporters, her team, her agents, everybody that's really helped her build the career she has. Um, and so I thought, you know, I, I did shed a tear. I thought it was, I thought it was touching. I thought it was a beautiful way to kind of celebrate that moment and all the work that went into it. Any surprises for you? I think, I mean, I think a lot of people who closely watch the awards maybe were expecting this, but I do think that the like immense success of all quiet on the Western front kind of surprised Mm, me. I think they won a lot of, you know, for best score. Um, I think everybody kind of expected them to win best international feature. Um, but I didn't expect the wins beyond that category. So I think, you know, a lot of people watched it. It's a Netflix movie. So maybe people at home were, you know, found it more accessible as well. In addition to the Academy itself, um, that was, that was a surprising uh, streak for me. Uh, what do you, what was your thoughts, uh, the in memoriam when they had Lenny Kravitz playing as opposed to just music sound and, and the flash? I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think, I mean, my favorite thing about these ceremonies is that, you know, you have all this talent in the room, why not use it, right? So I think that Lenny Kravitz, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if that's the most obvious pick for someone to play during In Memoriam. Well, you know what, There, you you hit the nail on the head, Sonia, I know it's not, and I think that's why it worked, I thought that's why it was kind of cool. Absolutely. And I mean, they had, you know, John Travolta introducing it, you know, of course, a nod to Olivia Newton-John. I thought it was, you know, the Oscars for me are always a reminder that it's like everyone jokes like, oh, everyone in Hollywood knows each other, but this is its own community, right? So I think drawing on that, drawing on people who they know can show up, whether they're unexpected or not, it's just, it's a fun surprise sometimes. Sonia Rao with us, features reporter, Washington Post, talking about last night's Oscars. Sonia, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Now, you know, I'm guessing if you um, were traveling, you're there now, man. It's Monday. You're on the beach. 
You're, you know what you're doing now? You're l- texting friends. Is, is it snowing up there? Is it snowing up there? Is it snowing up there? Yeah, whatever. All right, but um, uh, you know we have had some issues traveling uh, of late, especially in a and post pandemic world, and also it's um, life's getting expensive. So where are we traveling? What is it like at the airport? Uh, as this is the first day of March break, let's bring in Colleen Ryan, Associate Director, Marketing Communications and Customer Experience, Hamilton International Airport, and is with us now. Colleen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you very much. So we know, obviously, Colleen, that uh, Hamilton International is is a heavy-duty cargo airport, but still lots of uh, travel flying in and out. What's it like this week for you up there? Yeah, this is uh, really the first typical March break season, uh, kind of post-pandemic, and people are very excited to get away. And, uh, you know, you're out in the terminal walking around. For many, it's, it's their first trip in quite some time. So we're excited to welcome them back and we're delighted to see that they're returning, you know, domestic travel, international travel, and that they're they're choosing John C. Monroe Hamilton Airport to do that. Uh, obviously, uh, we heard of the issues that were happening in Toronto over the last little while. That has not really been an issue for Hamilton, has it? Uh, we haven't, you know, we're regional airports. We haven't seen the same impacts. It certainly has been busy. Uh, you know, no airport is immune. I won't say that there haven't been kind of some points at some point in the last couple of months where passengers haven't had a flight cancellation or a delay. But for the most mm-hmm. part, uh, we're able to keep things moving smoothly and trying to keep uh, people into that convenient, easy, stress-free experience that they've become accustomed to here at Hamilton. And this is really become an option for Hamiltonians who don't want to make the drive into Pearson. This is really gaining momentum, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Like our winter 2022-23 program, uh, we saw the return of lots of sunny destinations from our year-round partners, as as well as some increased frequencies on domestic routes through Swoop and Lynx and WestJet. We saw our seasonal airline partners come back with Air Transat and Sunwing. So they resumed uh, services past year as well. So with those five airlines already, we have a very robust mix of kind of you want sunshine and you want beach. We've got lots of options. And if you want to ski and you want to uh, mm. kind of take in that winter getaway, we've got that for you as well. And if you want to head out east or out west to visit family and friends, we've got you covered there, too. So uh, you were talking, obviously, during the pandemic and, and what that was all about. So is this really the first where, hey, this is March break. It's starting, it's starting to feel, I hate to use the word normal, but uh, it's certainly you're, you're, you're getting back to pre-pandemic uh, business, I guess, is the question I'm asking. Yeah, it is. You know, we had a, a kind of a slower start to last year. Everybody remembers I mean, we were all optimistic it was going to be a, a strong start. And we saw Omicron yeah. come in there and it kind of put a bit of a damper where March break fell. So for us, 2023 really is that um, kind of first typical March break season. The airport had a strong summer last year, and we're looking forward to another strong summer this year as well. Uh, so it is kind of that first normal, everything is heightening and, and kind of increasing back up. Um, one of the things that I'm liking as I'm walking around the terminal this week, we're starting to see the passengers are showing up earlier at the airport. And that, you know, I it's my top advice to anybody who's traveling who wants a less stressful experience. Leave lots of time uh, to show up and to check in and get through that. Uh, we also opened a fourth screening lane recently, which for pre-board screening, um, busy days like we're seeing this week and as ahead of the summertime, that'll help keep moving people moving smoothly as well. Um, so yeah, it is, it is certainly turning returning to normal and, and it's, it feels really good. 
Uh, so as far as uh, new destinations and such, because everything was kind of set on its uh, rear end as a result of pandemic and such, and, you know, some things uh, go away, sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. So uh, tell people why they should be flying out of Hamilton. And if you're talking about, you, you know, you, you talked about both domestic and uh, obviously sun vacations and such, but what is there that perhaps we haven't seen in a while? Yeah, so I think with this winter program, we've got lots of options in the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Mexico, Montego Bay, Jamaica just started back up as well this season. So that's great. If you want a U.S., you can hit up Florida and Las Vegas uh, as well. We've got lots of domestic destinations out west. Um, and we just saw a swoop announcing for the summer that they're going to return eastern trips out there to Charlottetown and PEI and Deer Lake and Newfoundland. And that's adding to existing uh, options out east. We've got play coming this summer as well. So via play, people can access 26 exciting destinations in Europe. They'll go through Iceland and connect into those. So really, it depends on what you're looking for and where your comfort level is and kind of what your your interests are. But you can certainly get to pretty much any of those types of interests and destinations through Hamilton. And again, we certainly remember uh, what it was like. Anybody that was fortunate enough to travel during uh, the times that it did open up. Are we still experiencing that? You you talked about tips and obviously leaving some extra time to make sure that you're not running, uh, you know, trying to get from place to place and such. But but what are some of the tips uh, traveling this year? Is it as bad as last? What would you suggest? Yeah, so my top advice for anybody traveling right now is to, you know, check your check with your airlines before heading to the airport, make sure you're checking for any delays or cancellations. Lots of times that's put up ahead of time if they know. Uh, I also suggest, you know, leave lots of time, especially if there's weather, you know, unfortunately, uh, I feel like I'm probably one of the few not traveling this this March break mm. and I'm looking out at the snow and it's falling out there now. So you want to leave lots of time to get to the airport, leave lots of time to park to get in the terminal and to make sure you got your, your checking bags, you're leaving lots of time for that. So I always suggest, even though it's a smaller regional airport and people don't necessarily think of it in the same way sometimes as the, the those larger hubs, I always suggest to arrive three hours before your flight if you're heading outside of the country, two hours ahead if you're traveling within Canada and domestically, uh, just so you've got that extra breathing room. It's always better to have a little more time than not enough. And what about doing stuff online ahead of time so you don't have to there? Yeah, absolutely. Lots of and most of the flight options now allow you to check in. If you're not checking a carry on or not checking baggage, you can check in online, take your boarding pass, go right to that screening line and go all the way through. So it saves you a step at the airport. All right. What is the deal with carry on? Because, uh, you know, we traveled in the last year and it's, you know, it seemed that uh, because of the whole baggage thing and in the larger airports and what was happening, that people stopped carrying suitcases. Instead, they were, you know, you were loading up with the carry on bags. Yeah. How many of those? Yeah, What's the deal with start, that? Yeah. You're are you, you that for sure. And it also, you know, lots of the flights, um, it's a it's a nice option to be able to kind of pick and choose what options you want. So it can cost a little bit more to check a bigger bag now, and it can cost a little bit less to check a carry-on or nothing at all. So lots of people choose that. Um, lost baggage certainly is starting to have an impact. We see more and more people coming through with carry-on and even smaller carry-ons just to make it easier. Um, so that's certainly you know uh, something that we're seeing here, even though we haven't had significant impacts on baggage delays, certainly some flights when they're off schedule perhaps. But for the most part, we work hard to mitigate that and to, to be ready and, and to kind of make sure people get reunited with those bags as they come off. But we're certainly seeing an increase in that. And, yet, you know, hey, if you don't want to lose your bag and you want one less thing to stress about, take that carry on and, and it, it helps there for sure. Most popular route destination this season for you? 
Oh, right now, I think I would say there's lots of the sunshine. People are looking to get yeah. back to that normal travel. You know, like I said, off the top, it's probably uh, first trips for everybody and people are looking forward to that beach. So, you know, Florida is very popular and those affordable sun destinations in Cuba, Dominican Republic and Mexico are also top uh, top favorites as well. All right, Colleen Ryan with us, Associate Director, Marketing Communications, Customer Experience, Hamilton International Airport. They are taking off. Uh, March break has officially started. Colleen, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You too. Do a matinee. Coldplay. Do a matinee. What about a 12 noon concert, Coldplay? What about it? Bruce Springsteen. Do a fucking matinee. You're old. Why wouldn't you let me come see you, Bruce Springsteen, in your glory days? Pun intended. I don't know. I, uh, I, I never really thought about it before, but, uh, now that I do, I do <laughs> think it's a great idea. Um, what the heck? I'm, uh, I, I hit that birthday. And, and, you know, even Alan Cross, the ongoing history of new music is also 30 years old. So let's see what he, hear what he has to say about all of this. Uh, and the, uh, matinee concert. Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music, Canada's longest running radio documentary with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm uh, reasonably okay. Yes, I want hey. winter to end fast, really fast, but otherwise I'm good. Yeah, I, my wife just said that, actually. Uh, so congratulations on your milestone. Uh, good for you. Kudos. Great show. Oh, well, thank you. Appreciate it. So your thoughts um, on what was said by Jamie Lee Curtis at the Oscars. Uh, is Bruce Springsteen, uh, is Bono, is Coldplay, are they listening? <laughs> do, do you think they heard know. that? I wish they, I, I wish they were. Um, because it's not feasible to have a big concert on a weekday because, well, for obvious reasons. But on, mm-hmm. you know, a Saturday or Sunday, it would be kind of nice. If we go back into history and we're talking about rock concerts, matinees were a very common thing. If you go back to the early 60s when the Beatles played Maple Leaf Gardens, they played two shows. They played one in the afternoon, went back to the King Edward Hotel for a bite to eat and a press conference, and then went back to Maple Leaf Gardens to play an evening show. Uh, that was fairly common. Uh, when we look at theater, when we look at sporting events, we have matinees. If you go to a casino and they have entertainment, there are mm. often matinees. So why don't we have them for big concerts, at least on the weekend? I understand that wanting to see... Wanting to see a show so you can get to bed at a reasonable time isn't a very rock and roll kind of thing. But <laughs> let's look at the vast, huge amount of Gen Xers and baby boomers that are out there that are getting older. And they don't have the interest. They don't have the time to stay out really, really late uh, to, to see a show. So it would be nice if they moved show times up so that we would have a, an easier time of, of seeing these gigs. And uh, I, I completely sympathize with Jamie Lee Curtis. I have gone to, I, I am done going out on a Tuesday night waiting to see the band I want to see um, come on at 12.15. It's just yeah, not yeah. going to happen anymore. So, and, you know, you bring up a valid point, Alan. Like, what if you're going to a club? I mean, forget it. Nobody goes on until after midnight. 
Well, okay, we'll come back to that in just a second. Let's talk about the big shows first. So I would I would think that it would be wonderful if, if Coldplay or, or Bruce Springsteen were to play a, a show that started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon that wasn't a festival. Uh, it would make it easier for, for things like babysitters, and um, you could go to the show and then go out to dinner afterwards. And if you wanted to carry on you know, the night, you could because the night would still be young and so on and so on. Um, that's never going to happen. And the reason is because touring is so expensive yeah. that uh, venues depend incredibly on concessions. They need to sell a lot of beer, in other words. Yeah. And people drink more beer and more alcohol in the evening than they do during the day. So the thinking is that if you had a matinee show and you weren't in a situation where you're like at a festival or at a casino – uh, where alcohol is flowing all the time anyway, uh, the the venue would take a huge hit in terms of revenue because people wouldn't be drinking as much. Hmm. Uh, sidebar, we've all been to shows in venues where there are cup holders. Do you know why there are cup holders at, at uh, amphitheaters and arenas <laughs> and stadiums? Yes. Do you know why? Why? Okay, the answer is because... I would assume to put your cup in. Well, not only that, but you go to the beer stand, you buy two beers. Right. So you got a place to put your second beer while you drink your right. first one. Seriously, that's why cup holders exist. So, um, you know, as much as I, I'm on Jamie Lee Curtis's side on this one, I, it, you know, I, I don't see it happening. Getting back to club shows, you know, why? Where is the rule that says that the first band, the, the first band goes on at ten o'clock? Why yeah. can't you have a club show starting at seven or seven thirty? And you have your headliner on, say, 8.30 and 9, and, you know, everything's over by 10, you can go home. Um, there, I, I just think that, that artists and agents and promoters and venues are leaving so much money on the table by having their shows scheduled late uh, so that older folk or people who have to get up at the morning, it doesn't have to be old, uh, are, are, are effectively eliminated. Has it got to the point where the, as you said, the productions are just too big? Uh, you know, if we had something, uh, on a scaled down version, you know, like you were talking about the Beatles in the old days and Elvis or whoever would play two shows. The shows were a lot shorter. They certainly weren't the Bruce Springsteen marathons. No, that's, that's true. And that, that would allow them to play the two shows in a day. You know, the Beatles would play two half hour sets. You know, big deal, right? Easy. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's not going to play two three hour sets, but he could play one three hour set. That started at three or four o'clock in the afternoon and uh, would allow everybody, you know, to get home at a, at a reasonable time and would be probably easier on the performers themselves because a lot of these heritage artists, you know, they're in their upper sixties and even seventies and it's yeah. not easy for them to play late nights, uh, you know, you know, again and again and again over a long period of time. So on the surface, it does mean it seems to make a lot of sense. But if you start digging into the economics of touring and concerts, it, it probably will never work simply because of the beer factor. All right. The matinee concert. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. 
You're welcome, you too. Sarah Chama, NDP candidate for Hamilton Center, supposed to be on uh, at this time, but has canceled uh, with just under 30 minutes before the interview. Um, so there you have it. We'll leave it at that. A lot of controversy uh, surrounding the uh, the candidate, so uh, obviously decided not to uh, come on and chat with us today. We'll leave that. All right. Uh, this is, well, we remember hearing this in the past, and uh, obviously American uh, banks aren't as heavily regulated as Canadians uh, Canadian are and uh, a little bit more susceptible to this sort of thing. But Canada's banking regulator has temporarily seized the assets of Silicon Valley Bank's loan Canadian branch after the financial institution collapsed in the U.S. Uh, U.S. banking regulators forced on Friday to urgently close the California-based institution after billions of dollars were withdrawn by fearful depositors, leading to a run on the bank, uh, which caters heavily to tech sector firms. There's now fears this could happen in other banks. Uh, but the president, President Joe Biden of the U.S., stressed Monday that Americans can have confidence in the U.S. banking system. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder with us, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Great to be with you. So I remember talking to you about this in the past and regulations different down there than here, but I thought they were strengthened up a little bit. Are you surprised to hear of this happening again? Well, they had strengthened up until, let me think of this fellow. What was his name? Oh, Mr. Trump came along and reversed some of those regulations. Uh, on again, that wonderful principle you've heard about before, too big to fail, that they're too big to fail, so we don't need to have these same regulations. Now, the key regulation is banking is what's called a stress test. And the reason why you have these stress tests is that a bank has a certain amount of assets, and then leveraging those assets, they loan money to other people. And they loan more than they have as assets. So you want to check to make sure that the assets are strong enough to support whatever you have. Now, in this case, the assets that this bank had, the Silicon Valley uh, Bank had, was primarily invested in bonds, bonds of tech companies, which would usually be considered uh, very uh, strong. Their whole portfolio, though, was giving them a return of roughly... 1.8%. Well, that was great at the start of 2021, but by the end of 2021, that kind of return isn't really good. Uh, and so, you know, what do you do? So they were trying to do things to improve their capital base, and they just basically ran out of time. There wasn't enough time to do this. Now, I would have suggested much earlier a regulator would have stepped in as the Federal Reserve Board was raising their rates to say, you need to take action in March of 2022 or May of 2022, you don't take action in January of 2023 because once you do start to take action, then the word on the street is, "Uh uh-oh, they're in trouble, Uh uh-oh, better be careful. And this is what leads to what we saw Friday was not only uh, what led to a failure, but first we had a run on the bank. I can't think of the last time that I've seen people lining up to withdraw cash And today what was announced is simply that the depositors are going to be covered. Just like we have in Canada, they have deposit insurance. And so the government's going to make sure the depositors are whole. What they're not going to do is bail out 
the the management of the company. They're not going to bail out the equity owners of the company. They're not going to make them whole, but they want to make sure that the people who are using the bank as customers, they won't be affected by this. Uh, as you mentioned, President Biden speaking uh, out on this and that their uh, deposits will be safe and such. Um, is there a chance that this could spread? Does, is this like a domino effect here? Well, I hate to tell you this, but it already has spread. There's a second bank in trouble in the United States, in New York State, uh, that the um, the state of New York has already moved to take some action now to stop it. Just to give you a sense of this, Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th largest bank in the United States. Big difference between Canada and the United States is we have a small number of very, very big banks in Canada. They tend to have a larger number of, of smaller banks. Uh, and so, for instance, the deposits being held by the Silicon Valley Bank is something like one-fifteenth of what something like the Bank of Montreal has. So I'm not worried at all about this spreading north of the border, at least in terms of our banks. Now, Silicon Valley Bank had a branch in Toronto. I don't think it was that big. And again, the Canadian government has moved in. The deposit insurance people have moved in. But there's also a branch, as I say, in New York. And what Biden is trying to do and all the regulators is, you know, let's keep the contagion as small as possible. We remember back to 2008, and it was the collapse of two or three large banking groups, Mm -hmm. including Goldman Sachs, that led to that recession. Uh, so how concerned is the president and, and those in the U.S. that this is going to happen or this could happen again? Well, I think, again, to be perfectly candid, this came a little out of the nowhere. And so I'm sure the regulators are now scrambling to check in with every other bank and check in, if you will, a fast stress test. How are your assets? How are your situations? Trying to identify if there's anyone's under trouble. Is there anything that can be done to make sure that they don't slip because you just don't want to see confidence lost in a banking system. Silicon Valley caught them a bit by surprise. Now they're playing catch-up today. They're probably doing it over the weekend, frankly, but today, tomorrow, the next day, just to identify anybody else. So you might hear about another one or two where the government's got to take some involvement, but the idea is to keep the contagion as small as possible. Is this more about the bank and managing of that or bad management uh, management of that rather than it is the economy? Well, it's a little a little of that, but it's also that banks in the United States tend to be regional. So with a name like Silicon Valley Bank, that bank was a big investor in uh, uh, Silicon Valley-type product, product projects. These are in Northern California, so high technology, what have you. And high technology has had a bit of a setback over the last year. In the early days of COVID, we all thought, oh, everyone's going to be buying their products from Amazon and Google's going to be there and Uber's going to be there. And then as we started to emerge from the pandemic, suddenly we reversed our buying habits. So all the major tech companies have been laying off some employees. So a bank that primarily catered to the tech company was even more exposed. That wouldn't be, for instance, the case in Texas. There, the banks are exposed more to the whims, the fortunes of the oil industry. So given America's regional banking, you have to look at a regional thing. It is a regional economic factor going on in Northern California, but it's not a broad-based one. Marvin Ryder with us, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I will be. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Here's a couple of names I didn't expect to be mentioning for a long time. And the reason being was when they were sentenced, they were, getting, they were given consecutive sentencing as opposed to concurrent, which means the sentences are, set, uh, are served one right after the other uh, as opposed to at the same time, which also means you don't bug the families by uh, trying to get parole uh, and, until much, 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 much much later. Uh, that has been overturned in a previous case, and Dylan Millard and Mark Smitch are going to do the same thing. To talk more about all of this, Alex Pearson is with us, host of the Alex Pearson Show, and you might remember uh, covered the Tim Bosma trial for us uh, way back when. Alex is with us now. Alex, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. I'd love to talk to you guys about something different, though, you know, but I, yeah. I know in this country we are guaranteed. Thanks to our charter. <laughs> so uh, I remember talking about this when mm-hmm. the sentencing went down and we thought that this might happen. So this isn't in- inevitable. This will happen. Yep. They will get their sentence reduced. Is, is this a done deal or close to it? Well, yeah. I mean, thanks to that uh, May 27th, 2022 ruling by the uh, highest court in Canada, which decided that it was, you know, cruel and um uh, what did they say? A cruel and unusual, um, you know, hardship. Yeah. Alexander Bissonnette to actually have to serve six sentences for the six people that he killed in the mosque. So, yeah, because they dumped his ruling, which would have had, had him serving a number of these 25-year sentences, you know, you know, back to back to back, instead of at the same time. You know, that's all reversed. And so now anybody who finds themselves in that situation, and the first names that came to my mind, and we talked about at the time, were Mark Smitch and Dylan Millard. Um, you know, so they can and they will ultimately because that precedent has been set. They can argue their case, and um, even if it's not argued well, they will likely be able to use that precedent. So they do. Uh, those decisions do very much come with consequences. And wasn't this done initially to avoid putting families through this appeal process time and time and time? Like I remember talking to Tim Danson with the French and Mojave cases, and 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 Bernardo that you know right after the decision came down, they prepared so the families wouldn't have to go through this. And wasn't that the idea behind the uh, concurrent sentencing? Or, set, or yeah. consecutive sentence? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was part of it. Um, but the other part was that life should actually mean life, which in this country, yeah. you know, does not uh, actually add up to that. You, you get 25 years. And so first degree murder is 25 years, and then you can start, um, you know, applying for parole. So when you get a family like um, <clears throat> the French and Mahaffey family who are dealing with Paul, Paul Bernardo, you know, you kind of think when these um punishments are, are given out, you'll never never make it to that 25-year mark. But it does come, and these families end up yeah. spending the rest of their lives every year trying to keep these people in jail. And we can kind of say, well, he'll never get out, or she'll never get out, but they do get out. And these families who are just trying to get the basic of justice, like imagine those who were killed by Alexander Bissonnette, who walked into a mosque and opened fire on Muslims at prayer. Can you imagine those families now having to fight every year once that 25 years comes up, you know, because that's ultimately what they'll have to do because our charter rights in this country make sure that those who are accused of the most heinous crime, and I would argue, um, and I wouldn't even dare be argued back, Mark Smitch and Dylan Millard 
do not deserve mm. to be out. They do not deserve the charter rights that we afford them in this, this country. Because frankly, I don't think it's cruel and unusual for them to. I think what's fascinating to me in all of this, and, you know, the older you get, the more you kind of roll your eyes at this stuff. But, again, we were talking about this during the time of the Bernardo case, and Tim Danson was working on this same thing. I don't yeah. want to have to put the families through this again. Yeah. And here we are a bazillion years later. And and yeah. that was the whole reason that he was declared a dangerous offender. So, uh, do you and and think that you that, have to apply for. That's the crazy thing. Yeah. Even to get a dangerous offender status in this country. Once they're convicted, a guy like Paul Bernardo or Markman, you have to apply for these things and argue these things and then get the judge to, you know, rule on these things. Everything is so difficult for victims of crime in this country because really, it's not about them. Once you become a victim of crime in this country, you'll realize that you're an afterthought. That is sad reality. And that's what makes me so angry is watching families like the Bosma, the Bosma Army, yep. you know, the Babcocks who didn't get anything, any remains of their daughter. They have nothing of their daughter. Mm. Tim Bosna, at least they were able to recover a little bit of him. Um, and, and I remember the uh, pathologist, uh, forensic pathologist in the case, felt so strongly about making sure she could see something, even if it was just a few crumbles of Tim Bosna's body. It was so personal for her to give wow. that to the family because she knew how important that would be. And I remember her testifying and um, Mr. Bosman going out and giving her a hug because that's the kind of family they were. But these yeah. small little things are so crucial to those who've been through um, this kind of crime. And, and so, you know, here the Bosnas and the Babcocks and uh, Mr. Millard's family, or Wayne Millard's family, will have to argue as to why they shouldn't get this um, hope that we in this country apparently think that criminals should have. So uh, if this is the case and, and this is granted to them, which it looks like it will be, then they will be eligible for parole in 15 years. So the Bosmas are going to have to go through that. And they're going through this again now with yeah. this uh, appeal and the reduction in the sentence at 10 years or even less. Yeah, look, the, 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 the victims of crime in this country, and I'm talking about violent crime, like uh, what they're going to be going through. I mean, they become almost a Scott, and I hate to say this, they become a complete afterthought once the charges are in place. Um, but the system is designed for them to become an afterthought. And once the cameras go away on a conviction or once all the story kind of fades into memory, they really are forgotten in many ways. But their pain doesn't go away. It doesn't stop. They are just more isolated and left on their own to deal with it. And so, you know, while we talk about Dylan Millard, we talk about Mark Smith, it really is the families, the Bosman, the um, Babcocks, and in many ways, Wayne Millard's family, because he was killed, too, by, by this yeah. guy. And, and let's make it clear, this was a thrill kill. They can whine and argue all they want about what was not yeah. fair in the charge, the whatever. They are thrill killers who didn't have any remorse, and they still to this day have never shown any. But, of course, they think they deserve less penalties and less crimes and convictions, so that's what they're fighting for. This is a pretty high-profile case, as the uh, Bernardo one was. Do you think uh, mm -hmm. Canadians have, have finished speaking on this? Do you think politicians will get the will get an earful? You know, I think Canadians have given up um, because we hear about this so often, and certainly now, when we have all this violent crime going on, major crime is up, and then you hear yeah. who's committing it, and you think, well, I follow the rules, and why, why are we always giving? second and third and fourth chances to, to some of the worst criminals in this country who don't deserve it, Scott. It's not like I'm saying no one deserves a second chance. Yeah, of course yeah. they do. But when you've gone out and killed two to three people in something that was just done for fun, 
no, I'm sorry. You don't deserve to have the benefit of the doubt or hope. Uh, and so I think a lot of Canadians are just kind of throwing up their hands and saying, well, what's the point in arguing this? Even if you get something like min- mandatory minimums, like Stephen Harper tried to put in, someone will come in and knock them down under a charter, right? Even now, as we're talking about all this electoral interference in China, the argument from Marco Mendocino is, well, we have to make sure that any kind of foreign agent registry we have is, a, is charter approved. You know, we're like, yeah. who cares? With someone from China trying to break the rules in our country, they get charged, yes. right? I mean, it's just bad. <laughs> we have to make sure we treat the criminals correctly. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, man. No, that's on there, right? So, you know, never mind the Bosmas and the Babcocks. And the, just make sure the criminals get there on Thursday. Alex Pearson with us, host yeah. of the Alex Pearson Show. You can hear on 640 in Toronto and, of course, covered the Tim Bosma trial for us here at 900 CHML. Alex, as always, thanks for the time. Be yeah. well. Thank you. You as well, sir. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Another... Another announcement in the electric vehicle industry uh, in Ontario. Volkswagen building an electric vehicle battery plant in uh, southwestern Ontario. The car maker said today an announcement heralded by the province's economic development minister as an illustration of Canada's rapid reversal of fortune in the growing sector. Uh, this is going to happen in St. Thomas, Ontario. To talk more about all of this and what it means, Dr. Ian Lee with us, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and with us now. Ian, thank Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. What are your thoughts about yeah, one time Ontario kind of you know not really uh, ahead of this game. Now we seem to be in it. Is are, are we a player now when it comes to EVs, or will we be? Um, I want to answer it this way. Um, first and foremost, this is very good news for Canada. It's very good news for Ontario and especially Southwest Ontario with the uh, decline of uh, tr- uh, main, uh, traditional automotive manufacturing with the closure of plants in the last several years you and I have talked about. So this is really good news. But this is also a very good news for a completely different reason that nobody has touched on. We have been told for a very considerable number of years by our cabinet ministers, federally and provincially, that you've got to pay big buck subsidies to attract business to invest in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I had a uh, a guest speaker in my class about five or six years ago. Uh, I won't name the company. Extremely well-known, publicly traded, and he happened to be in Ottawa visiting, and he was an SVP of business development. And he said, we were talking about this very issue of why do companies locate in company country A versus B versus C? Why do they invest in Detroit as opposed to the southern U.S. or in Germany instead of Canada or the U.S.? And he said it's one of the great myths or, or urban legends of politicians everywhere that, you know, the only companies just slavishly follow. You wave dollars at them and they just go off and where they go, away they go. His point was, and I've been teaching this ever since, is, is that there's got to be a whole host of competitive advantages. You have to have a strong labor force, an educated labor force. Mm. You have to have access to raw materials. You have to have access to other markets. Of course, we have NAFTA, which allows goods to tr- uh, move tariff-free. And and so my point, Scott, in answering you is, yes, this is a fantastic story. Yes, it's really good news. But I hope that we will stop. Uh, at least it will cause our elected officials who make these decisions to 
calm down the rhetoric, cool down the rhetoric that uh, the, the, or the strong impression that the only way you can attract a big company to come to Canada is if you bribe them with a lot of money. Here, this company was looking, Volkswagen was looking at in the U.S. It was looking at multiple locations in the U.S. And I do not believe that we outbought the U.S. government. I don't know the details, but I have this, you know, the U.S. is 10 times bigger than Canada, and the government of the United States just released their budget. It's $6.5 trillion. That's three times the size of the totality of Canada's GDP. So my point being, I don't think Volkswagen came here because we outbid the United States of America. They came here for, I'm not saying there's no subsidies involved. I'm saying I think they came here for additional reasons, access to raw materials, scarce uh, minerals, uh, educated labor force, uh, support of government um, in, in Ontario, I, I, because that's where it's being located. So I think that, uh, that we have to look at this in a broader context and say we don't, we've got to think about other ways to seek comparative advantage in Canada, not just trying to bribe companies with taxpayer dollars. And that's exactly what it says in this article. The the company said Canada offers ideal conditions, just like you're describing, including a local supply of raw materials and wide access to clean electricity, as well as the educated workforce. So electricity, supply of raw materials, and then again, how, how lucky or fortunate is Ontario to have all of that on its doorstep. You're right, and I really want to emphasize this for your listeners. I think this is very important. We've been told, we hear it almost daily in speeches in the House of Commons, unfortunately. You know, they portray these large corporations as these greedy, selfish capitalists. All they want to do is make money, and they have no other interest in this world, which in itself is wrong. Companies exist, as Joseph Schumpeter taught us, as Michael Porter at Harvard taught us, as other uh, Nobel winners have taught us. Companies exist to create something of value, a product or a service that you or I want to buy. And they do that through innovation and adding more whistles and bells to make the iPhone more attractive or the Honda more attractive or whatever. And this idea that they're only there as greedy, rapacious, corporate capitalist predators is a, is a very false ideology. And I think it hurts you and say, so what? They want to spout nonsense. It hurts our public policy making. In other words, we do have comparative advantage, significant comparative advantages in this country. We are the fifth wealthiest nation in the world on a per income, per person basis using OECD data. Okay, we are, as I've talked to people who come here to us uh, from outside of Canada as foreigners to invest in this country, and they said, you don't understand all the advantages here. He says, Canada is seen as paradise. We, you, they don't seize your assets like they do in many developing countries. Uh, there's massive corruption in many countries around the world. We don't have that. We have public health care. We've got multiple, multiple real measurable advantages. And we don't just have to bribe companies to come to Canada. So I hope that the government decision makers start to change the message and change the tune and realize that's a very simplistic um, message, which is not doing justice to the country. And maybe they're not getting enough companies to come here because they're not telling the complete story about Canada's advantages. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, Volkswagen, investing in southwestern Ontario, St. Thomas, building a new electric vehicle battery plant there. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Russian invasion of Ukraine continues. Uh, it's just This is really a grinding part of this conflict. It just seems to be dragging on. Uh, we're hearing more and more about Russia attacking uh, Ukraine's any energy infrastructure and such. Let's bring in Andrew Rizoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and with us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you very much, Scott. You know, uh, Andrew, everybody's behind this. Everybody wants to see Ukraine doing well. But, man, this is just grinding on and dragging on and dragging on. Is there some way, is there something that's going to trigger an end to this in any way? Not in the short term. Um, This is now, as you've described, very much a a war of attrition. It is, uh, from a strategic point of view, a stalemate in the sense that the overall lines of defense and an offense have not moved very much. There is operational level movement in the town of Bakhmut, which we've all heard about recently. Um, the Russians are pouring in tons and tons of ammunition and people there and taking huge casualties to try and take the town. They've managed to close it and take half of it, the eastern half, and they've actually managed to encircle the town from the north and the south where the Ukrainians still hold the west half and the route, there was an access route to the west, which is under, but under Russian artillery fire. So that being said, there's, that's the heaviest of all the fighting. There's also other fighting going on north to the south of the entire eastern front, as well as, of course, periodic Russian missile bombardment against the Ukrainian uh, power grid, uh, primarily. Having said all this, what we're into is strategic grind. The, it's expected that Ukraine will try to launch its offensive, because right now we're seeing a Russian offensive, which is kind of slow and grinding. But the Ukrainians are, are hoping to launch their late spring, early summer offensive once they have received the latest wave of Western equipment, particularly the main battle tanks and the infantry armored fighting vehicles. So once that arrives, they will try to form some kind of a strong spearhead formation that could try to punch a hole in the Russian line. So what I'm saying, though, is that there's no end in sight. There is more fighting in sight as the Russian offensive moves than the Ukrainian counteroffensive comes. So we go to the fall after these offensives play themselves out, because eventually they all lose momentum until they refresh. Now... What's the political landscape in the fall going to look like? Will, will the people, will the Ukrainian and Russian appetite start to look for a ceasefire alternate to the to the grind? Because it's it's unlikely that either side is going to be winning or losing on this one. It's more like a saw. Uh, obviously, Russia is aware there's more equipment and such on the way for Ukraine uh, from the Allies and such. Are the Allies content with just? plugging along at this pace or um is somebody going to demand an end of this in some way or uh, because it seems like a tit for tat sort of thing and and nobody wants it escalating much beyond where it is but it seems to be stuck here yeah i mean yes nobody wants it to escalate and right now within the grind you know it's 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 sort of just sitting there burning up lots of people's lives and lots of ammunition and equipment now the west is pledge to keep going, all right, and keep keep reinforcing. The Russians are able to reinforce themselves. They have their own factories. They're also getting help from North Korea and, and Iran, and there's, you know, underneath the surface, there may be Chinese help coming in. So both sides 
appear to be supplied for the attritional phase. So the question that you're raising, I guess, is do people talk about an end like a ceasefire? Because no one's going to win or lose. I mean, I'm postulating no one's going to win or lose. You never know how wars go. Yeah. Hard to project. Mm-hmm. But what we can see is more of a Korea 1953 situation, if you want a scenario, historically speaking, mm. where people can't move the other guy any further. And then they say, why am I expending lives and ammunition for no no political gain? And at that point, you saw often, except the ceasefire, no political deal. I don't think there's going to be any political deal here for quite some time. But there could be a ceasefire, let's say, in the fall, as 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 people start to get exhausted and with their political game. Uh, you talked about uh, allies reinforcing and, and keeping the supply chains uh, of ammo and such open. Uh, now we're hearing reports the Chinese president is going to meet, uh, Russia to meet with Putin. What does this say to you? Yep. Well, that, that, the Chinese have been have been doing a really uh, 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 express diplomacy in the last couple of weeks. So uh, the senior uh, Chinese diplomat, the guy who, who advises the president, he met with Putin about, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, and, and sort of basically prepping this visit. So what the Chinese are demonstrating is that um, they, for the Chinese, the, the real issue here is the United States. And the Chinese are the rival to the United States for uh, the perspective on the geopolitical balances. So the Americans have this unipolar, liberal, rules-based democracy thing that they are the lead for. And the Chinese are saying, no, 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 we want a multipolar, alternate kind of uh, geopolitical linkages where it's not all about democracy. It's about other ways of, you know, other ways how people govern. The Chinese are not a democracy. Um, Neither is Russia. So they're forming this alternate grouping. And the visit to Moscow, uh, which I guess is going to now be early next week, perhaps, uh, is to reinforce that. And uh, there's been, and that's what the Chinese are doing. They're building up the, the alternate geopolitical alliance. That's not just too strong a word. Grouping to counter the American West alliance. Hmm. That's basically what we're seeing. It's a good big geopolitical game, essentially China versus the United States. As you said, China obviously, uh, you know, wanting to trade with everybody. Uh, is Russia going to drag them down? I mean, China certainly has a lot more command of the economy than Russia does. Nobody's rush- running to buy Russian goods. Um, at what point does this start to drag China down? Well, Russia, Russia is actually supplying uh, uh, China with very uh, required uh, natural resources, gas in particular. Yeah, so the yeah. Chinese are dependent on that. So they're getting a very good deal. They're buying uh, Russian exports at a, at a low rate. So uh, very good for the Chinese. So they're they're gaining by this relationship. And uh, and there's armaments. Uh, you know, they, they're, they're, the Chinese have bought some Russian armaments. And so no, no, the Chinese actually they they don't want to see Russia lose. It's not so important for Russia to win, but they don't want a loser here mm. because China wants. This is a Chinese opportunity to challenge the American rules-based system. And that's that's where the Chinese are maneuvering on this one. Edward Rizoulis with us, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, giving us an up, uh, update on where the Russian invasion of Ukraine is. And, of course, uh, a long winter, and now we're talking into the spring and next fall. Uh, Andrew Rizoulis, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. 
Uh, we remember how our behavior has changed and what has happened during all of this time. And many people, and we were just so fortunate to get a dog prior to all of this fun stuff happening. Uh, so, and, you know, obviously a great addition to the family. But when we were at home, there was a mad dash for people to buy pets, uh, dogs, cats, what have you, uh, to keep them company at home. And then, of course, as things ended and people went back and as well, we're seeing in Inflation and just the you know just, uh, the cost of everything going through the roof. People have started giving back their pets, and we've heard some terrible stories of uh, people abandoning abandoning them on sides of roads and boxes and bags and in whatever dogs, cats, because uh, they just can't cope with them anymore. Whether they don't want them, uh, don't want to go through the hassle of going into an, an SBCA or Humane Society. They just can't afford them anymore. Uh, let's bring in Mike France, Director of Operations, Lincoln County Humane Society, and with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well, Scott. Thank you very much for having us. Mike, I remember talking to various uh, SPCAs and such in the area, and, and you know, usually they were looking in normal times to uh, adopt animals out. Hey, who wants a pet? Who wants a pet? Come get them. And then during the pandemic, you couldn't get one because everything was, was taken, was, was uh, being adopted, which was great. Are you seeing the pendulum swing back and, and people starting to return them post-pandemic? So on occasion, you know, I, I think that there's always – a scenario in which kind of you highlighted that it's not working out for the individual anytime. Like our, mm-hmm. our ask is mainly don't dump it. Like I think we're going to get into, but uh, yeah. like we just had an adoption event over the weekend and we had saw 30 animals go out to new forever home. So we're mm-hmm. super excited about that and making sure that we're going to continue to do our screening on our end, just to make sure that they're going to go out to, uh, to good homes that are going to be here for the long term because there is a, an incredible amount of stress on the animal to which, you know, they go out to one, and then they are returned. So we always yeah. have to avoid that by some of our screening. We'll focus on reducing like the stay here for the animal too. Uh, obviously, and that's one of the great things about the Humane Society is they do try to pair you up with the perfect pet. They don't try to, again, do something which is going to see a returned animal. So you do try to screen to make sure you get the right fit and the right animals going out the door here. For sure. And I, I can appreciate that, you know, people are looking on the website and they like the look of that dog or that cat mm. or something. But personality definitely plays into it, right? If uh, I'm a married man and I, I do know that, because uh, personality is a huge piece. So we do try and guide because our staff has intimate knowledge of the animals that are in our care. And we will try and, you know, pair you with the right animal for your situation. Are we hearing more of more pets being dumped? Is this something like you said, it happens from time to time? Or are we seeing uh, an uptick in this sort of thing because of where we are with pandemic and such and people's just lives are changing again? You know, sadly, we're a few months off of Christmas now. And we did have uh, an incident on you know late February there where we mm. found some bunnies in a cardboard box, which is sad. I'm glad that they were recovered and someone was able to bring them in. Um But, you know, I I really want to stress and remind everyone that, you know, you wouldn't buy someone a reindeer at Christmas. It certainly shouldn't be a bunny (laughs) as we head into Easter here. So, (laughs) you know, I I mean, it sounds funny, Mike, but you're absolutely correct. It does happen more than we think, doesn't it? It does. It does. You know, I get, you know, again, I've I've got a child. I can understand how that, you know, persistence, uh, persistent asking can cause people to cave but this is definitely something that should be standing firm on and make sure that it's the right animal for each individual and their circumstances within their homes
Uh, not only the time and the care, even if it's a bunny or a dog that needs walking. I mean, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of upkeep to anything like this that you do. But are people aware of how much a pet may cost them over the weeks or months or years, uh, whether it's for food or, or you know, any sort of supplies that they need? You know what, the, the food and the water outside of the, you know, physical kind of effort that you need to be able to provide, it, it can be substantial. So I think that people do need to be aware of what it is that they're getting into. As like as you said, right, inflation is rising. Whether it's the unemployment rate is uh, not super friendly. These are the things we need to be aware of, right? Because it's the one, the food, the treats can be one cost. But now when you start getting into vet bills, they can be they can add up very very fast and put people in a tough position. So when we do our applications here, we ask a general question: How much do you think this animal is going to cost you? And some of the answers we get back are pretty shocking, uh, as you know, as then they kind of just put down a, a bag of dog food. So we do try and educate the public here on what it is that you really should be looking for when you're looking to diligently vet your animal. And that's on an annual basis or three years for the rabies shots. But every animal that comes out of Lincoln County Humane Society, they've got, you know, they're spayed or neutered. They've got their rabies shots. They've got all of their other vaccine vaccines and they are microchipped. So we take care of the kind of first piece for you. And then the, the maintenance on, you know, outside of that is on the individual, but we try and be very clear on what they should be expecting. So no one's surprised. So we don't end up in these dumping scenarios. What is the average cost? Like, I mean, you know, I mean, dogs are different, but say an average medium sized dog, 30 to 40 pounds or an average cat, what does it cost on a monthly you basis be, to keep these? Yeah. You a uh, monthly basis for the, you know, that size of dog, you're probably looking at a hundred bucks. Um, yeah. but that could be, that could be 500 if it's, you know, a special diet that they need to be on or they need blood work or, you know, I think it's that cost really varies based on the individual dog. But you got to look at, you know, next time you're in the pet supermarket, look at what it is that the, yeah. the dog food does cost. And then, you know, think about when you get into a vet, because not only are vets hard to come by, they're not cheap. So uh, what if somebody finds themselves in a predicament, Mike, where uh, I shouldn't have done this? I made a bad choice. I didn't do my um, edge. I, I didn't do my uh, legwork or I'm not educated on this. Or even if you did and then you just decide it's not working. What do you do? I mean, uh, are, are the humane societies open about taking these back? I mean, as you said, you obviously don't want to do that. It stresses everybody out. Um, but will people feel bad? or look down on if, if they try to bring these back? Uh, so I can't speak for the other societies, but, you know, for us, we do always practice compassion, and we can understand that there's a variety of different situations in which someone would have to do that, and it's never an easy decision for those individuals. No. So please, you know, come see us. There's not going to be any judgment. Um, we will take in those dogs, to find, or dogs, cats, bunny, whatever it may be, any animal under the sun that we will be, you know, happy to take that animal in to make sure that we are able to vet it, provide it the care that it needs while, you know, in the shelter environment, and then get it back out to another home. Because the last thing that I want to see people are doing because they're embarrassed is doing something like we saw with the bunnies and they're just dropping it up the side of the road because that's, that's heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, we are here to be able to provide some options for individuals. So don't hesitate to reach out to whatever that may be for your uh, jurisdiction or area. 
And, you know, a lot of people go to breeders, whatever. I mean, it's best to start a, at a humane society and give another animal a home. And also you can get this sort of education and all things done to get off on the right foot. You're absolutely right. You know, I adopt over shopping, I think, is, is always a viable option for everyone. We are constantly getting new faces in. So if you're after a specific breed, you can almost just wait because uh, we do see quite a bit in. We, You know, I'm a beagle lover. I've had, I've had a few in my life, and we've got two in here right now, and I'm fighting not to take them home. I think, <laughs> is, I think if my wife is listening now, I'll be getting a text shortly to say bring the beagle home. But, um, you know, we, we have a variety of animals, and I, I think if you stay up to date on our website, you will see new faces because they, we do get out. Like I said, we had 30 go out over this past weekend, and as we create space, we now have availability to help out individuals, like you said, of maybe this isn't the right thing for me but being, and being open and honest i think with yourself is important and if you're looking for a beagle you better hurry up before mike takes it home all right uh mike france <laughs> with his director of operations lincoln county humane society and doing the right thing if uh you have to make a change with your pet mike thanks for the time good luck you too scott thank you you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It's not unusual for the guests to cancel out on the Scott Thompson show. It's not unusual for those that say, go to hell, I'm not coming on. But usually if you book, you come on, you know. Uh, like the prime minister, he wouldn't come on. Jugmeet Singh comes on. Uh, so uh, earlier this week, uh, our just a just a great producer we have here. They're all great, but Liz Russell does a fabulous job. And she said, you know, we're going to get all the by election candidates on. So we had the Greens on, the Liberals on. We're trying to get the PCs on. And today, the NDP and Sarah Jama was supposed to come on today. And then, like a half an hour before she was supposed to come on, uh, we get this note: "I am so sorry, but Sarah is not able to make it onto the show today." Today, I release this would have been in, I guess I realize this would have been in 30 minutes, but I have just been told, <laughs> sincere apologies, uh, Shervin from the Ontario NDP. So I'm not surprised because when, when Liz said this was going to happen, I honestly thought, no way. There's no way she's coming on. And, uh, you know, because of the, um, uh, you know, all the, the commotion in regard to Israel and defunding the police and, and so on and so forth. And this is a Hamilton Center's, uh, it's a, it's a stalwart and, uh, NDP seat. And, uh, so yeah, when I heard that in the last minute, she bailed. I guess I'm not surprised. Are you Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show? And you can read in your Hamilton Spectator coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Are you surprised? I will answer this way because I've had guests that have pulled out before and bailed or for whatever reason. Almost always, Scott, almost always, when someone has to do that at the last minute, I will hear from them a little bit after with an explanation. Oh, you know what? Someone got sick or. And it, and it happens. And, yeah. it, and it happens. And in those cases, I always like to, I always like to take the position, even though it can be frustrating at times. I like to take the position. There must be a good reason. I have had to bail once or twice before. So, you know, now that said, I would fully expect, fully expect that Sarah Jama herself will be on the phone to you 
explaining what was the emergency that came up because that would be courteous and that would then let you know, I just didn't bail because I didn't want to talk about stuff, but hey, there was a situation that arose that I couldn't get around Mm. and I would fully expect that tomorrow when you come on the air, you will tell us, I heard from Sarah, boy, it was a tough thing. I get it. I understand. We've rebooked her for today. And now, if that doesn't happen, that's a different story. And then we can have that discussion another day about because what that might be. And, and, and I've had those before too. Yeah. And I have much less respect for those who just all of a sudden pull the pin. Yeah. And, and you know what? It could be an emergency. Who knows? It could you be. Know, it's, and so, uh, yeah. But I expect, you know, like, look, I know she's busy. I but know normally when those sort of things happen, they say there's been a personal emergency. You know, even blah, 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 blah. so. Even as, if opposed the person, to, as opposed to, I've just been told. Okay. But even if her spokesman, <laughs> and I don't blame her spokesperson. Her spokesperson probably doesn't yeah. know. But yeah. as I say, I fully expect, I know she's busy. I know she's campaigning. Yeah. But it would take 30 seconds to make a call or drop an email and say, Scott, I'm sorry, this came up. Family emergency. Uh, this came up. Whatever. And I'm really sorry. Can we do this again? That that is what I would expect because that is what most people who do this kind of thing do or say after or drop a text or just vigor. I get. I got to tell you, most of the people who have ever done this who maybe haven't picked up a call when we're calling a night. I'm so sorry. My phone was off. I'm so apologetic. I feel terrible. We will see. We will see, and we will judge. I have done it. I have done it to you. Well, and you have. I have done it to you, and you have been very apologetic when that has happened. And I and (laughs) I can't. How can I? How if someone makes a mistake or has a circumstance arise in their life? How can I go nuts at them? However. I again, politeness, common courtesy would be I hung you out to dry accidentally. <laughs> I will at least apologize to you, which you've always done, which everyone pretty much most of the people have always done. We will see. Um, that being said, uh, this is obviously a strong seat for the NDP. They oh, it should it have been an eight. absolute lock, Scott. This should have been, uh, they uh, could have run. Do you think this is in, je- in jeopardy now uh, because of what this, the attention that this candidate has been drawing on other issues? See, here's what I don't know. The, the, we had a piece in the paper today or I don't know, I think it was today about advanced polling and mm-hmm. the advanced polling is almost non-existent. There, there is so little interest in this race, it seems, yeah. that – so I don't know whether that means that someone else is going to swoop in and steal it because there's such low turnout or if it's just the people who are really diehards for the NDP in that, in that riding who will, who will take it. I don't know how to interpret that. But this should have been – I mean, honestly, you should have been able to run a balloon in this riding. And it would have won yeah. for the NDP. This was this is the lockest of lock ridings. You would think this is like running in Trudeau's liberal riding. Like yeah. you, it should be impossible not to win this. I fully expect that she will win this. I just don't know whether she'll call you and apologize. <laughs> All right, and we'll leave it at that. Uh, Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you have a great show tonight. We will endeavor and, to, and, and hopefully you'll, you'll get the call that I didn't. Hey, if, if Sarah wants to come on after six o'clock, we'll we'll do that then too. I just don't want to go on with that other Scott, but I'll go on with you, Mr. Rat. Hey, the lines are open. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. All right. Thank you, dude. Have a good one. See ya. 
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. You got two men that have one has got 75 years of penalties because he killed three people. Uh, another one's got two. Uh, they say, oh, it's cruel punishment that they may never get out. What about the punishment and the hell that the uh, wife and children are going to go through for the rest of their life? Are they going to get parole from uh, from that? Are they going to get some kind of assistance? <clears throat> when you got a mad dog, and I'll call him a mad dog, and it goes off the wall, you put it out of its misery. Stream on Stack TV.